look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? Well, you know, it's been an interesting <laughs> week, pal. I'm not sure to answer that question today. It is an interesting week. It uh-huh. was a crazy week. Yeah. 15% plus drop in the markets, U.S. primarily, yeah. um, s- since Monday. Yeah. Um, holy cow, what panic, what fear, what the heck is going on? Yeah, panic and fear is the word, right? And uh, I mean, what we're getting is these very sharp drops. It's not like we haven't seen. I'm going I'm to use a phrase here that might offend some people, I think. But, um, you know, a 10% pullback is a garden variety pullback in equity markets. Yeah, that, it doesn't feel like it when it happens in three days, though. Right. That, that's the issue, right? Now, we did a little bit more than that, right? Kind of uh, around a 13, 14, 15% would be fairly normal, you know, given the kind of shock that we had and that, that i mean that's probably offensive to people listening to it because it was quick it was sharp it and it creates panic and the headlines and the news yep. all of these things you know uh prey on on uh people's emotional reaction to this stuff okay okay so before we jump into a great show that we have today i want to kind of just walk us through what the the, the coronavirus is doing the the economic impact and then you know let's kind of give an idea of what we're doing with 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 our clients. Well, let's talk about what's going on in the market, right? So we hear about coronavirus, 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 and listen, it's not the coronavirus that's creating the problem. It is the it, it it's the countries, various countries and governments' responses yep. to trying to contain the virus that is the economic concern. For example, if you quarantine people, four hundred million people in China, and they can't get out of their homes to go buy things. Right. Well, you'd expect to see an economic response to that, right? The, the economy slows because people aren't consuming. And so, they're not going to work, which was part of the supply chain, so things cannot be shipped out. Right. Remember, one in five goods touches China. Yep. If, if parts of China are under quarantine, those parts are going to be impacted. Yeah. So let, let's, let's just talk about, um, you know, the, the, let's go through the rationale on this. So if you accept that it's not the coronavirus, but it's our response to trying to contain the coronavirus. And there is an economic response taking place right now for all the reasons we just stated. Yeah. The question you need to ask, start asking yourself, and the market is asking itself, and economists are asking themselves, is um, how much of this uh, reduction in consumption and demand okay, for goods, yeah. how much of it is permanent, and how much of it is a deferral until a later date? And that's well said. So... If and if you believe this is a real big problem and you think that no one will ever buy anything again, right? That's one thesis to have. I've yet to meet somebody who has that thesis, but right. it's it's on the table to think that's the extreme. Right? Well, no. Let's so let's let's present the extreme so we can get some bookends there, right? Okay. I mean, I was talking. I've been talking to lots of clients uh, this week, and um, you know, one client said it to me best. He said, "Is this the zombie apocalypse?" You know, you know. I thought, well, I guess that's. You know, theoretically, a possibility that that this virus <laughs> ends it all. Okay, we're all zombies by the end of it. Only people talk about zombies to you. Do you notice that? <laughs> no one that. talks to me about zombies or Star Trek <laughs> or anything like that. All right, so I might attract a certain type of person. Yeah, Fair I think enough. you do. Yeah. But you know, in, in, in that particular case, I'm not sure anything that we're going to talk about today is relevant because we're all zombies, right? So, okay, that's the most extreme. So, getting away from that extreme. Could could if the coronavirus expanded beyond Chinese borders, which it has, could we actually see a global quarantine? 
Everybody in the world's quarantined to their homes. You well, can, you can't quarantine right. seven that's, billion people. That's control not, that, and, right? That's not likely to happen. Correct. So, so as we start moving more into the spectrum of what is reasonable, right? Then we get to this point that you know people will probably maybe delay a trip to a, a place where there's an outbreak. Correct. Right. Um, some might buy canned goods in sort of a bring forward of consumption. So on the one hand, we've delayed a trip. On the other hand, we maybe buy our, we're buying canned Stocking goods and perish- yeah. yeah, things that we can stock in our pantries. So that might bring forward. But the point, of the, the point is, at this, at this particular point, we don't know how bad the virus is going to get in terms of the death toll and the human toll. Um, we don't know how far it's going to spread, and we don't know when it's going to burn itself out. But, but likely all of those, you know, that, that will happen, that this too will come to an end. Correct. Um, and then we're faced again with its decision, permanent destruction or temporary destruction and demand. And I would say that the, of all the research we're doing and the reading and so on and so forth, that historically uh, what history would tell us is that most of what's happening is a deferral of demand. Yes. Not a permanent destruction. Correct. It will you know, never happen again. So we're likely dealing with uh, some, some sharp volatility, uh, but a temporary position. Right, it's a temporary problem, and by temporary, I you know maybe it's a week, maybe it's six months, but it's not the rest of our lives, right? And, and that's what we're trying. That's what the market has to get its head around. Yeah, and so what do you do going forward? Is now continually look at the economic data behind this. Right. Do not react just to the markets, but look at the economic data, and there will be an economic impact. And now the R words back mm-hmm. might be a recession this year. Right. So the question is, if there may be a recession this year, who can try to help? Who can bring out their cape with their S on their chest to save the day? Right. It's the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world that can start to give some monetary stimulus, and the governments can do some fiscal stimulus. Part of this fiscal stimulus would be, how about we ask a billion dollars from Congress so we can help this this pandemic that's already now in the U.S. borders? Mm. That's stimulus. So there's going to be spending. Now it's a how quickly, who, when, you know, those are the different questions. So it's not going to be a permanent destruction, but it's going to be volatile in economic recovery. Mm-hmm. And it may lead us to a recession this year. I think it's a 50-50 chance now. Right. As of right this moment on this Saturday, 50-50 chance. Yeah, that's fair. It's certainly gone up, right? The chance of recession has gone up. Changed materially from what we would have been talking about at the beginning of the year. Correct. And so this is where we have to be managing it. Now, as the growth guy on the team, I love when people sell and panic and give up good opportunity or giving up owning good companies. Well, yeah. So, and, and explain and why. This. Well, explain why. I, there's, there's a unique sort of thing, I think, taking place right now. We were talking to some CIOs uh, in, our, in our committee, our investment management committee, yeah. about about the the baby out with the bathwater scenario, Correct. right? And we've talked about exchange-traded funds in the past, ETFs, and yeah. they might be having a bit of an effect. We here. don't have a lot of time to go into the details of okay. this because we have to start our, our next, uh, let's go to commercial break. Yeah. But I love when people start to irrationally sell because they just give up everything right. and they're just selling at any price. Right. And they're getting out. And I love this because now I get to go shopping. Right. You know, I, I, I have two daughters, Dave, and they love to go shopping and buy stuff because it's the buying that's the, yep. the energy. I love buying things at cheap prices. And it's going to happen. It's yep. going to happen. Yep. And I'm going to enjoy this buy because people are acting irrationally and I get to work with rational f- financial data to get in. Now, yes. we have a great show today. Yep. We have, hey, 
How do you live to 100? Yeah, I want to know that. Yes. Because I've committed to my wife. Well, in fact, she's told me I'm going to live to 100, so I want to make sure I do it. Poor woman. Um, so, <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. And, you know, there are certain personality traits that dictate how much money you have in retirement and what's the impact yep. if you're withdrawing. So yep. that, these are, what's your personality trait and can you handle the withdrawal in retirement? I think these are a couple of great conversations we're going to have with some experts today. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think that psychological element um, is an important... Right about now. Yeah, that's right. right it's so now. important and it's going to be fun to talk about today <laughs> because there's so many people on the brink of making emotional decisions yep. and those emotional decisions often lead to long ter- longer-term problems. We're going to wrap up how we handle this type of coronavirus, the economic impacts, how to profit and protect... We've been protecting our clients through this mess uh, in the markets. And so we're going to walk you through how we do this so you can bulletproof your retirement. You can join us on Tuesday, March 10th, 7 p.m. at the Hamptons Golf Course. You do need to reserve your seats, though. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right. Well, stick around after the break because we're going to figure out how to live to 100. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and more than money. Uh, Maddie, my wife, has told me that I am uh, going to live to 100. That is her request and demand of me. Why does she want to hurt herself like that? (laughs) That's a good question. She's a special girl. She can tolerate me. Maddie, you and I got to talk. (laughs) Dave and I have been working together for 10 years. I don't want to live to 100 and still work with you. (laughs) I'm hanging around you forever. Please don't. (laughs) Help. You know Somebody what? help me. Yeah. But more and more people <laughs> are making it to 100. They are. They are. Right? We are living longer. We know that. We talk about it all the time. And that creates certainly some financial planning pressures for Andrew and Suzanne and our team, right? The longevity, it can be both a, a blessing and sometimes a curse. For those of us who are not around Dave Popwich, they actually do want to live longer. <laughs> they are looking for ways. And so there is, you know, there are some ways that you can live longer. There's some things that you can do. Okay. I'm going to give you mine. I'm going to give you the things that I do to ensure that I make it to 100. Okay. I wrote a couple of them down here, okay? Let's do it. Well, I drink a, uh, I drink a spiked espresso every single day, and I have a martini every night. I think you're on to something. I, my grandfather, who didn't make it to 100, gave me that advice, but I sure like the advice. Uh, I think. And then you worry all day. <laughs> yeah. I work in the markets when they're going crazy. And yeah, yeah. No? It could work. It's science, no? I, I, it's somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure we could find an article that says what you're doing is absolutely on the right track. All right. Well, let's find out if it's science or not. <laughs> Tristan Hopper is with us today. He's a journalist with the National Post. You know, uh, Tristan, welcome. First of all, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay. So, uh, you know, we got to talk about this Centurion Club. I got to make it, right? My wife has said I'm going to make it, so I got to make it. And I've got my plan in place. I think you heard what it was. Is that uh, you know? Is that just myth or is this science? Uh, so, what prompted me uh, to write this story for the National Post is it's sort of a community reporting trope. Uh, so, I, I came upon these stories all the time uh, when I was going through the wire services. So, whenever someone turns a hundred, you send the rookie reporter over, and then you <laughs> ask them, uh, "Hey, why did you? Uh, how did you turn a hundred? And then they always give the worst advice ever. Uh, it's always stupid. <laughs> Uh, so they're always like, well, you know, I, I and it, it's it's always it's always like liquor related. Like, well, I mix whiskey in with my cornflakes. I've had twenty cigars a day. Uh, every morning, I fight a bear. It's all some reckless thing that statistically 
you shouldn't be alive. <laughs> and the real answer in all of these cases is you're just really lucky. Everyone else <laughs> who was born with you died, you know, on Juno Beach, and you're still around. And you you think you have the right to lecture us on how to live forever. <laughs> Fighting a bear, that sounds good. I haven't thought about doing that one. That yeah, seems, that does seem a bit risky. That though. will increase longevity for sure. <laughs> uh, the, the other one that you mentioned, or another, one of your rules, was be rich. Tell uh, me yeah, more about so that, that one. Uh, I mean, so you can still die if you're rich. So Paul Allen, uh, of course, died at 65, so relatively young, just, just not too long ago. But, uh, yeah, it, be rich. And fortunately, everybody in the listening audience does fall into that category. So... It really helps if you're super rich. Uh, but generally, if you just live in a first-world country uh, with uh, long life expectancy, that's your best bet uh, to make it to 100. So the rates of centenarians, and there's some flux. Um, there are some rich countries in which they have fewer relative centenarians as compared to others. But generally, rich country equals people living longer. Because all the sort of easy stuff that's going to kill us, uh, we don't have to worry about that. So... Um, we don't really have to worry about deadly tuberculosis as much in Canada. We are, you know, we have some of the safest roads in the Western world. So all the sort of low-hanging fruit to stop yourself from dying before 100, we have less of that uh, than almost anybody else on Earth. Okay. Then, and, and I throw that in, in a little bit of the lucky category. I mean, we're all fortunate that we were born in Canada or, you know, a, yeah. a, a developed world. And But fair enough, we've got clean water and all those things, and that helps us live longer. Okay, so Dave, you mentioned the espresso, Mm -hmm. spiked espresso, at night a martini. Mm -hmm. You didn't take a look at rule number three on his list. Which is? Don't be fat. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Well, there's only 64 calories per ounce of vodka, so my vodka martinis are, you know, they keep... 7,000 calories a day. (laughs) So, Tristan, let's talk about the don't be fat as rule number three. Uh, I actually found an exception to this recently after I wrote the story. So uh, I was just looking at pictures of centenarians. And generally, when you look at super centenarians, uh, so over 100 or over 110, uh, they're all pretty thin. Uh, So we all know being obese is bad for you. You usually don't live long. Uh, So, yeah, the one factor that I found between all super centenarians is they're generally thin. So, you know, keep the weight down, and that's probably your best bet to live longer. However, there is an exception. Olivia de Havilland, who is the only surviving original cast member from Gone with the Wind, still alive. She's 103, and she's kind of on the heavier side. Um, so you can make it to Olivia de Havilland's age, but we'll see if she make it to, makes it to 110. All right. That's fair. Uh, I mean, that's that's an obvious one, I think, is you got to stay... Right. You, you don't want all of those diseases associated, first world diseases associated with obesity, for sure. Yeah, Tell us and about... also, it, it, like, a, there's, I think they're called blue zones, uh, and these are zones of the world that uh, have high rates of centenarians, like ridiculously high as compared to other places. Right. So, like countries uh, like Japanese Japan. island of yeah. Okinawa, although we usually hear it in you know, war context, uh, that has a lot of centenarians. And when researchers go there, they suspect it because they have a really good diet. They eat a lot of vegetables, uh, fish, um, you know, super unexciting food that uh, none of us eat, and that's why we're dropping dead for us. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, what about, uh, we're social creatures, so what impact does, you know, being social have on our longevity? I think, I think that's probably the biggest factor. Because um, uh, So I've got a grandma, uh, she's 98, and so basically everyone she's ever known in her entire life and her generation uh, is dead. And the one thing, if, if you can characterize what separates her from the rest of the pack, it is um, 
an incredible devotion to being social. Um, so not just like I enjoy socializing, but like I have to get out this morning and socialize with people or else I'm going to die uh, because I have to sort of, you know, have that reason to get up in the morning. So, uh, yeah, again, when you look at these blue zones and you look at where there are high rates of centenarians, um, it's usually because they have a good social life. Uh, so if you want to live forever, you've got to plan a retirement where you're going to be surrounded by people. So, you know, I've got family members uh, who they're turning 65. They're starting to lose mobility. They live at a shack, in a shack in the middle of nowhere. They have health problems, so they can't move around as much. Uh, so they're becoming increasingly isolated. That's a bad plan. Uh, okay. What you want to do is get into an urban environment, you know, join a bridge club, uh, force yourself to go to bridge club, even if they talk politics the whole time and you hate it. And every time you see your grandson, you're just complaining about all the biddies at bridge club. Do it anyway, uh, <laughs> because socialization uh, is is going to distract you um, from wanting to die. And then number five, a reason to live. I like this one. Yeah, so that can be anything. Um, that can just be motivated by any any reason. Uh, so, again, I've had members of my family um, that uh, you kind of retire at 65. You're really invested in your work or you like fishing. Uh, the minute you can't do any of those things, you just drop dead. And you see this with uh, couples, you know, yeah. couples that have been together for 50 years. One of them dies and the other one's dead within a couple of weeks. I think, yeah, it was the Bushes. Uh, Barbara Bush died and then George H.W., uh, with it a few months later. So you just kind of lose the will to live. Like, I bother getting up in the morning. So that's uh, when I look at my grandma and her sort of small cohort of late nonagenarians, um, it is they like getting up in the morning. They like continuing to do things for whatever reason. So that could be, you know, an overarching fear of death. I think that factors into it. Uh, but just enjoyment of life. Uh, you want to see your great grandkids reach a certain birthday. Uh, whatever it is that gets you up in the morning, uh, you're going to live forever. And, you know, there's negatives to that, too. Uh, yep. Stalin, you know, like, there's there's lots of, not Stalin, but there are a lot of dictators who lived a pretty long time uh, because getting up in the morning and signing death warrants apparently is very enriching. Um, so. <laughs> well, you could throw that into their purpose, I suppose, but not a, you know, we'd argue not a good one. Um, here's yeah. your problem, Faisal, is that I have a great-grandmother. My great-grandmother made it to 100. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to be around to 100, unfortunately, okay. in your life and bugging you the whole time. But, you know, to your point, Tristan, I would say that her goal was to make it to 100. So yeah. she actually fell down the stairs in her house at age 95 and broke her hip, and that is often the end within a year, yeah. if you talk to the me yeah. you know, medical profession. She survived that. She clawed her way back. She crawled back up, and she was hell-bent on making it to age 100, and she did it, and she didn't last much much past that 100th birthday, but mm. we had her 100th birthday. And it was yeah. really interesting, and I'm convinced it was just her force of will that she was going to make it to 100. There you go. Oh, yeah, because it gets, it gets it get, get, living is a real pain in the butt at a certain <laughs> age. I mean, this is, this is what I get with my grandma. She's like, you know, everything hurts. Uh, yep. i got to force myself to go to the grocery store. I, I don't really like socializing. Uh, like, she knows she's got the Google Home thing, so she knows she could just stay in bed and talk to a robot all day. Uh, but she's like, well, no, I got to get up and do things and, and stay active and not deteriorate physically. That's all a lot of work. Dying is way easier than any of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that positive note, <laughs> why don't we wrap it up there? Tristan, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Really interesting article. Tristan Hopper, he's a journalist, and this was from a um, 
an article he put in the National Post. So we got to help people figure out how they're going to have the necessary resources to be socializing and physically active and do all of these wonderful things to make it to a healthy 100. That's right. On Tuesday, March 10, 7 p.m. at the Hamptons Golf Course, you, you'll be learning about how you can have your money last for as long as you live, but you need to reserve your seats. Give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Do you have the right personality to have money? Stick around after the break. We're going to talk about that. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. We talk about uh, psychology in investing in finance all the time. Correct. Um, we've got a guest that's going to join us today and try to answer the question, of why do extroverts have all the money? <laughs> okay. What, what, what's interesting about the stuff that we've done in the past has been how do people behave with money when it comes to market volatility and so forth? Yeah. This Never. one is a little bit different. Mm. When you're taking money out and living off of it, yeah. it's called a withdrawal rate. Yeah. The withdrawal of your money, your behavior, your personality traits have a lot to do with it. For sure. And we see this all the time with clients and there's often at least one of the two in a couple that is really sensitive to this right because Correct. there has been a very long period of their life that they have been putting money away and saving and then all of a sudden this prospect of having to spend it yep. although that's why they saved it in the first place becomes really quite real challenge oh my <laughs> really god it's a challenge yes okay we have uh sarah acevedo joining us uh shortly she's a phd She's also got a, uh, a CFP, and she's co-author of a study called The Psychology of Portfolio Withdrawal Rates. She's, uh, she's at Texas Tech University. Sarah, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's just start right at the beginning here. Why, why, why investigate this? Why did you guys have this study in the first place? Uh, Dr. Browning and I chose to embark upon this study because there is a great deal of literature that's real technical around portfolio withdrawal rates, meaning uh, looking at things like bequest or in, uh, leaving an inheritance, expectations for that, uh, portfolio allocation and age, and how those things drive how much money someone should take out of their portfolio and evaluating that as the rate of withdrawal or the clip in which you are withdrawing money. So while we saw that there's a lot of technical literature out there, we also see that people withdraw from their portfolio at widely varying rates. So what we thought is that, well, there's got to be something else predicting this and influencing and associating with this portfolio withdrawal rate, and it's probably behavioral or psychological that is also playing a role in how people withdraw money. So okay. you talk about these personality traits. Mm -hmm. In your research, you came out with five big personality traits. What are they? They are the big five personality traits. And in personality psychology, these are widely known, widely researched traits. So they are openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And these traits have been linked to a variety of behaviors. And uh, they have also been linked to a variety of financial behaviors. So we added to the lit literature and linking them to portfolio withdrawal rate behavior, but they've been linked to saving behavior, uh, budgeting type behaviors, prudent financial behaviors, uh, so to speak. Uh, and what we have seen in sort of the 
financial behavior literature is the conscientiousness trait is no surprise very robustly linked to what we would consider prudent behavior, like saving, budgeting, setting goals, following through with them, etc. So it's probably no surprise to hear that conscientious people tend to save and accumulate wealth. And we also see in the literature that extroversion, this is a trait to where you get a lot of energy from being with people. You tend to be pretty social. This trait is interesting because it is associated with larger wealth accumulation, but daily money management practices do tend to be a little looser, maybe some more impulsivity, but extroverts tend to also engage in higher earning occupations, have lots of opportunity given their social network and interactions, and they tend to accumulate wealth. We see in our study that conscientiousness and extroversion were associated with lower portfolio withdrawal rates, meaning they they withdraw from their portfolio at a lower clip than someone who is less conscientious or less extroverted. And on the flip side, we saw agreeableness, neuroticism, and openness associating with higher withdrawal rates. And each of those traits, so agreeableness and neuroticism, have both been shown to be connected to uh, lower portfolio accumulation over time. And sometimes, especially neuroticism, a bit more impulsivity, agreeableness can be related to maybe more uh, outward giving, and um, which, which can be very be be very good and altruistic. However, sometimes that means you take care of other people and and don't take care of your own financial situation. Uh, openness, uh, they're less material, but there's more looser money management practices. So it was interesting for us to see that some of those saving-oriented tendencies, prudent behavior seems to carry through to the portfolio withdrawal phase. So those that tend to accumulate wealth and save also withdraw at a lower rate and sort of continue that saving tendency into retirement. So, Sarah, a couple of things. Uh, as, as we're going through these and, and I'm thinking about our listeners, how, do, how does this information help somebody? So somebody's listening to this and maybe they're sort of classifying themselves in these, with these five different characteristics. What could somebody learn from this and how could it change their behavior? That's a great question. So the practicality, right? Yeah. Bridging research and practice here. So it helps uh, in my perspective. I've, I've been a financial practitioner in the past, and right now I'm focused on research and bringing in that, that expertise to my research. And I think this helps people because it builds understanding as to why you might behave the way you do. Uh, so, for example, if you tend to be more neurotic and, and have higher or more neurotic tendencies, that could be driving some of your portfolio decisions when you're selling maybe at the wrong time and not based on a sound portfolio strategy. So if you sell at a, you know, when markets are down and you lock in those losses, that can permanently sort of cripple your portfolio a bit and just because of that cause a higher withdrawal rate if your spending stays the same. So if you tend to be a bit reactive to markets and want to sell and do things when there's volatility up or down, it could be your natural tendency to respond with fear, stress, or worry to that stress or event. And that could tie back to more simply your 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 neuroticism or stronger neuroticism trait. Others who are lower in neuroticism just tend to react a bit more calmly, maybe take more time before making those decisions. Agreeableness is another one I really like uh, because this can associate with maybe giving uh, to a certain extent to family, friends, or charity. There's nothing wrong with that, but if it does result in you not um, 
saving or preserving money in your own accounts, uh, that could cause some long-term uh, damage to the portfolio and potentially put you on a path to run out of money too soon. So understanding who you are down to the core of your basic personality traits, because those do affect how we behave and interact with our money, and it affects how we feel. So obviously neuroticism uh, tends to be linked to more negative emotion, uh, and that all plays into the amount of control and resiliency you feel over your money. So the more in control and resilient you feel, the more you save and the lower your withdrawal rate in retirement, the less in control, the less resilient you feel. That's been linked to less saving behavior, lower wealth accumulation, and in our study, higher withdrawal rates. We have 30 seconds left, uh, Sarah. Can a person change their personality trait or it is what it is? So you are who you are. I There is, you know, debate around can that be changed. So my perspective is you are who you are, but you, when you're aware of your natural tendency to react and behave and you pause, you can change aspects of that that may not be helping you at the moment. So if you're more neurotic, you may not be able to help some of your tendency to be fearful or worry, but when you recognize that's what's happening, you can put in place strategies to help combat those negative emotions. Yeah, you know, I think, and the other piece of advice is surround yourself with people that have strengths you don't have, right? I mean, oh, the, yeah. that, that's it, great. it's very difficult to, I think, consistently overcome those impulses that you might have, but other people can help, right? If you identify it as a challenge, Right then, you fill that gap Correct. with somebody who can help. Absolutely, Sarah. We're Absolutely. gonna have to leave it there. Yeah, I want to thank you very much. The research is interesting. I love the psychology of investing and the impacts it has on people. Thank you for your time. Great, thank you so much. We've been joined by Sarah Acevedo. She's a PhD, a certified financial planner, so she's got industry experience, as she said, um, uh, Faisal. And she was a co-author of the study, the psychology of portfolio withdrawal rates. Something we see all the time. The the impacts of that. Let's talk about how to set your portfolio up so that you can withdraw in an environment like we're in right now and maintain a lifestyle that, that you want. Yeah, we're going to do that on Tuesday, March 10th, 7 p.m. at the Hamptons Golf Course. You need to reserve your seats. Give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay, join us after the break. We're going to talk about whether or not you should, if you have a pension, keep it, or you should commute it and take the cash. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Faisal, it came to our attention uh, recently that there are some changes happening to, I'm just going to pick on LAPP. There's a few pensions here, yeah. but a, pen, a pension plans. Public service pension plans. Yep. Yeah, that are going to materially change the amount of money that you could get if you were commuting it after April the 1st. Okay. So let's kind of just take one step right. back. There are two choices when you are when you are leaving your pension plan right. or your, your employer. Yeah. You can keep the pension and get your monthly income, or you can take the money out and invest it yourself through what's called a locked-in registered account. Yeah, that's called commuting the value. That's called right? commuting. Taking the amount of the pension associated with your benefit, taking it as a lump sum in cash, and investing it, as you said. The provincial government changed or put some amendments to some rules within a bill that is effective April 1st, which basically says... If you're going to commute your pension after April 1st, mm -hmm. be prepared for a reduction in the amount that you can you can uh, receive. In um, these public sector. And it ranges from, depending on age and yeah. so forth, from th a 30% reduction to as high as I've seen, 63% reduction. Right. So brought up a conversation that we had in the office saying, should you commute then? 
Not even because of this situation, but in general, people have pension plans out there. People have a choice of either keeping that pension or or commuting, taking the money. Yep. And over the last 10 years, markets have been pretty good. Why not take the money? Right. So let's kind of go through what what what's the pros and cons of this? Why benefit? What's the benefits uh, of of commuting and versus keeping the same? Now, you and I are different people in regards to our, our mindset when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you know, I'm more conservative. You're, you're conservative, and I'm more more, more aggressive. Right? So, so, so let's, let's yeah, let's give them both sides. Let's so just talk about the have... high level. Okay? Sure. Let's start high level. Sure. Like, um, if you have a choice to keep the pension benefit, that is the guaranteed. So, if it's a defined benefit pension plan, you will receive a guaranteed monthly payment for the rest of your life. That of course assumes that the pension is well funded and it'll it'll last. Let's, okay, let's but let's just time. assume that that's the case. Correct. So your benefit is you get a monthly amount every single month. You don't have to worry about it. It's like a paycheck for life. Okay. Okay. That's the benefit. If you decide to commute, that means you take this lump of money, this lump sum of money out of the bigger pension, right? Effectively, the amount of money that the pension had to set aside to offset your lifetime benefit, and they just hand it to you. There's specific structure that they do that, but they hand it to you, and it becomes your responsibility now to invest that, to create that, L- that that income. monthly income stream to support yourself for the life Correct. for your life. Okay, let's talk about some of the drawbacks of a pension itself. Well, talk about there's what you're trading off on those two decisions at a high level. Yeah, flexibility versus guarantees. Correct. Okay, that's that's the essence of the whole thing. That's it. I want more flexibility. So, what are some of the things that are flexible, and right. what's the what's not when right. it comes to that that guarantee in the world of guarantee the pension plan? Yes. What you give up is that flexibility of increase in income whenever you need it. Right. You give up what's called a death benefit, meaning your spouse, if you have one, may have a reduced pension, mm-hmm. may, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and that amount will be less than what you receive together. Mm-hmm. And if both of you pass away, say goodbye the rest of the money. It's right. gone. There's nothing left. It's, it is just a payment plan. It's not a dollar amount or a savings account. Correct. You have exhausted your payment plan. Correct. And you're done. Now, the flexibility side has some negatives to it. You are 100% responsible for making sure that income flow comes to you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. If you invest it incorrectly, it's on you. Yeah. You could lose it. You could, you could lose the ability to... Access to capital, right? It's gone. You've Correct. spent it. If you spend more, yep. Yep. because that's the flexibility you choose, right. you could run out quicker. Right. Which is what a pension plan will never let you do. Correct. The flexibility side of it is, if you pass away and the income flow is, can stay the same, your spouse, if you have one, gets it. Right. You get a reduced one in the in the guaranteed side of the pension. You can have the same amount if it's sustainable in your own, in the flexible side. The other part of it is called a death benefit. In the event you pass away and your spouse passes away, yep. there's money left over. Right. If, there, if right. there's money left over, it goes to your beneficiaries. Right. There's an estate value. There is no estate value in this guarantee. So there's pros and cons with both. Yep. Now, I'll tell you, the lion's share of people who talk to me say, I want to commute without exploring their options. Right. This is where we kind well, of let, let's 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 say why that is. So there's a unique. This is a unique period of time um, where the commuted values, because interest rates are so low, because return expectations from an actuarial basis are low. Correct. 
the amount of money a pension has to have or set aside for you to generate the benefit is high, right? There's an inverse relationship there. These low in- earning rate environment means it's a high amount of money that they've got to set aside. So when you look at that commuted pension, it can be a big number. Correct. A million, million and a half, $2 million. Correct. Right? Um, and that can be enticing, right? That's different than if interest rates were at 10%, that would be a much lower number and the commuted value would be much lower. Correct. So it, it's the number itself, the sheer size of the number for many people is uh, is impressive. It catches their attention. Yeah. This is my money? I right. can I can now have that in my own hands? Right. So, yeah. And this, this is the problem for the pensions. So the reason, to some extent, that these changes are being made is because they recognize in this environment a pension if somebody commutes it. The pension has to hand over this giant sum of money, Correct. historically giant sum of money. Correct. Right? And that impacts their ability. And pension plans are changing all over the place to try to limit people's ability to do that. So now comes the conversation where people will go to an advisor, mm-hmm. a financial institution, and say, I want to move my pension over. Let's open up the appropriate accounts. Let's sign some documents and let's get this money over here. Before you do that, we do something different. Yeah. We sit down with them and actually do the analysis. And in many cases, we hire an actuary. That's right. To look at the actual numbers and forecast which one's better. Right. This is a big decision, and it's a one-way decision. Correct. you got to get this right. Do the research. It is non-irreversible, yeah. the word. You cannot change this. Right. And it can impact your entire retirement. Right. So this is important. So I think part of this whole pension plan conversation, and the buzz will happen a lot more, I think, in and around April 1st when the government changes happen, people from LAPP and pension service uh, uh, pension plan or P- uh, public service pension plans, and yeah. uh, those, those groups are going to come out and say this is ridiculous. Well, uh, number one, uh, we're going to have an actuary come on and in, in the next we'll go into little bit of time and bit. talk about that. But if you're, if you're part of the LAPP or the PSPP plan, you, ju- you need to start educating yourself about what your options are because there is a fundamental change being Correct. proposed, right? Correct. April 1st. And I believe that these types of changes are going to happen to all pension plans. There have been financial institutions yep. that have said, you can't commute your pension. Yep. Done. Right. Uh-oh. Not an option. Not an option. You just get the benefit. You just get, and that's that's a big change. You've planned your life to maybe commute it, and you know, the, or or you know, you, maybe you've got two people, right? And you want to hedge your bets. You you commute one pension and you keep the other. Yeah, but that Can't might not be an option in Can't, the future. Might not be able to do it. That's right. And so the family estate value might be radically impacted. By Remember this. the risk here. As more and more people age. More and more opportunity for commuting or taking yeah. money out. Yeah. Less money for the pension. This is not a good sign for the pension. So they're going to make some changes. So planning is important. That's the whole part of it. So if anything you've learned from this segment is to, if you have a pension plan, start to plan for multiple options. Do the analysis to see what's best for your situation specifically. There's too many coffee shop conversations of, well, I commuted my pension. You should do it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't listen to the coffee shop conversation. Get the analysis done. Yeah, no, agreed. It's an important decision. Clearly can have a major impact on uh, a number of aspects of retirement and family wealth. Okay. Um, let's, uh, a pension. We got to ultimately pensionize 
people's uh, portfolios at some point when they move into Correct. into retirement yep. to get them the highest probability of success, right, to live the lifestyle they want in perpetuity. That's what they're doing, lifestyle. Dave. They're, they've, they've saved their money throughout yep. their entire lives to provide them with income cash flow. We right. call it a pension payment in, yep. in the pension world. And so they can enjoy their life without the worries of these markets going up and down. Right. They just want that pension check for life. Yeah. They want to make sure they never run out of money. We're going to talk about that on Tuesday, March 10th, 7 p.m. at the Hamptons Golf Club. Now you need to reserve your seats. We're filling up quickly. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay. Thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We look forward to speaking with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.